You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to this place and for uh, the hope that we have that is in you. Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us today through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we've turned the page. We're on 1002 now. Uh, and I hope that you are enjoying this series. It's very hard to go through the book of Hebrews uh, in big chunks, which we're not doing. And I hope that you see that even though we're going in very small chunks, what the author is saying is of such importance and is so deep that we can easily get lost in it. Uh, it's not an easy read, Hebrews. Uh, he's saying a lot, and especially along the way, he'll say things like, consider, or think on, or remember. Uh, most of you probably are familiar with the passage of uh, consider how we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Uh, what the author of Hebrews is giving his uh, listeners, his readers, are things to think on. So when you're sitting there washing the dishes at night or when you're uh, going and taking the dog for a walk or, or whatever it might be, uh, these are the things that he wants you to think upon. And he's uh, getting into now the incarnation. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that is Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. Uh, one of the things I hope that you do see, uh, to piggyback on what I said earlier in the letter to the Hebrews, is the connection between the heart and the mind. Uh, they're inextricably linked. And so in order to have your mind expanded, your heart needs to be filled with the joy and love that God gives through his salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, oftentimes the Bible will use the, the image of the eyes of the heart. Or Jesus will say, uh, you, uh, he who has ears, let him hear. We have to be given spiritual eyes and spiritual ears in order to comprehend what God is saying to us in his word. We can't mind the depths of it apart from him. And so if you want to see your heart filled with love and joy, 
Your mind has to be expanded. And that's exactly what the author of the letter of Hebrews is doing with us today. As I said before, he's very intelligent. He's brilliant, assuming he is a he. He's very logical in the way that he lays things out. But he's also incredibly pastoral. He not only cares about the mind, he cares about the heart. And so he's answering the pastoral issues that are being raised in the life of these Jewish Christians back when he's writing. He wants to meet them where they are. And he's now getting on to the incarnation. The idea that God came into earth in the person of Jesus Christ in order to dwell amongst us. And he says not only did God come, but how did God come? How did he come? As a baby. That's the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. I mean, if I'm God, how am I going to come? I'm, I'm coming with the army. Right? I'm coming with the angels with the fiery swords and, and all of that stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming on the big white horse. I'm, I'm riding in. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom, does the opposite of what the world thinks God ought to do. And he comes as a little baby. Why? Well, the author of Hebrews is telling us here. He's coming that he is made like his brothers in every respect, verse 17, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Is there anything more vulnerable on the face of the earth than a baby? I mean, for those of you, uh, you were all babies once. Uh, but for those of you who remember having babies or have been around babies, uh, they... Um, I don't know how else to say this. Um, they're difficult. Uh, they, uh, I, I, I don't know if they know that they're trying to kill their parents, uh, but you know, they uh, sensory deprivation because they know they have nothing to get up for tomorrow morning, and so why not? Let's party. Let's have a good time. And uh, and then even as they get older, they bring germs and things like that in the house and try to kill you with biological warfare. Uh, and you have to take care of this baby. It's one of the most alarming things that happened to me uh, in the entirety of my life is Lauren had our first child, and then the hospital said, it's time for you to go home. And the first time you put the baby in the car seat, and you think, you shouldn't let me take this baby home. <laughs> this, is, this is not okay. Uh, and then, uh, I, you know, I'll admit it, uh, the number of my children who I put up on the bed to change the diaper, and I turned around, and they were not there. Right? Uh, you have to look and take care of, of babies. And so that's how God comes to earth. And it must have been a strange thing to look down into that manger and try to make sense of it. This is the ruler of the world. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. But he comes to us as a baby. Vulnerable. Knowable but also killable. But it would be mere sentimentality to simply look at the manger without the cross. And people will try to do that. 
People will make Christmas a very sentimental thing, and I'm kind of a sentimental guy. I really like the whole feel of Christmas. My favorite thing when I was living in England was Christmas because it really felt like you were living in a Dickens novel when you would go through the covered marketplace in Oxford and the, the game would be hanging from the rafters and you would have carolers, and it just it, it com- felt completely and totally right. And there is a sense in which the author of Hebrews wants us to dwell on the amazing Uh, truth of the incarnation that God himself has come amongst us but he also wants us to know that he comes with a purpose in order to bring many sons to glory that is why he came he comes with a purpose and that purpose is to die so he writes with these concerns in mind he writes because he wants us to know Jesus who he is and what he has come to do He's also concerned with the concerns of the Hebrews who are worried about what their life looks like now that they are standing apart from the synagogue. Because the Jews in this day, and even to a large extent now, uh, are concerned about place, having a land. They're concerned about being a people. But they're also concerned about the priestly ministry. That was the answer to any ritual defilement that you incurred. Just a couple weeks ago, we preached from Mark's gospel on Jesus being given a hard time because he and his disciples did not wash their hands, in the, not for hygiene issues, I'm sure they did that, uh, but, but for ritualistic reasons, Jesus and his disciples didn't do that. And so if you had incurred um, a ritual uncleanliness, you needed to be able to make purifications for that, and in many instances, that could only be done through the services of a priest. And so that's the conversation that's going on between these Jewish Christians and those Jews that are still in the synagogue who don't believe in Jesus and rightfully giving them a hard time. Well, what do you do in this instance? Well, you say that Jesus is your great high priest. Well, where is he? The priest here at the temple, he can just pop around. There were lots of them. They could just make their way into the house and they could help walk somebody through any given situation. And yet, the only priest that the New Testament speaks of is Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Elsewhere, about those people ministering to other Christians, people like me, the word priest is never used. It's always elder, deacon, or minister. And so it's seen as a deficiency to not have a priest. And yet, the author of Hebrews says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. He's talking about being set apart as a people, as God's people, through the Lord Jesus Christ. That you and I and they have been sanctified. Now this ought to make us a little bit queasy because most of us think of sanctification as a sort of perfection. And, and that's the length of the length sanctification holiness. And yet all of us ought to really be honest with ourselves, I hope, and that we are honest with ourselves, to know that that's not where we are. And yet we have been set apart by God. That's what this word sanctify means. Elsewhere in other translations of the Bible, it's consecrate, to set someone or something aside for a purpose. 
But the author of Hebrews is saying something rather radical because he's saying that people are holy, that you are holy, even when you know you're not. And that would have been a blasphemy. But people are the ones who are made holy through the Lord Jesus Christ. Objects are not holy. There's no such thing as a holy object in the entirety of the Bible. There's not. And any time people started to make something out to be holy, guess what happened to it? So remember back in Numbers, the bronze serpent? The bronze serpent that was raised upon the staff and the, the vipers that were in the, uh, in the camp and if you were bit by the vipers and you looked at the bronze serpent, what would happen? You were healed, right? You were saved. A wonderful image of the cross. That's what Jesus uses in John chapter 3 when he's speaking with Nicodemus. What happened to that bronze serpent? Fast forward to the Old Testament and we find that it was destroyed. And why? Because people started putting their trust in bronze serpents and not in the living God. Now we can say, well, they're being silly. But this has happened to us before. I, I, I will never be able to shake uh, the story of someone telling me of how he lost his family in Hurricane Camille. He lived down in past Christiane, Mississippi, and Hurricane Camille was barreling down on the Gulf Coast, and they thought surely of all places to be safe, it would be at Trinity Church there in past Christiane. God would protect them, and they ran into the church and were never seen again. They thought that a building would save them. Indeed, the building that we're in is set apart for a certain purpose. But it's consecrated, it's sanctified, because you are in it. It has no purpose apart from you and from me. And yet it always pains me to see an old church building used for other purposes. This is especially true in urban areas. If you've ever been to a big city, this is a big deal in England, uh, where you uh, walk into what looks like a church building, but now is a bar. That, that's, it's pretty standard, and this is happening in New York City and, and elsewhere. And there is something significant about our buildings. Now, I'm talking about all this because this is how they're feeling about the temple and how they're feeling about the synagogue in Hebrews. It's hard for them to get away from it. In the same way that it's hard for us to sort of separate our own faith, even from buildings, for good reason. Because some of you can even sit in this space and say, I was married there. I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, right there in that second pew. Remember when that funny thing happened over there in the corner? Real spiritual things have happened in places that have been set aside and apart for those things. It always bugs me whenever we walk into one of those old churches that has now been turned into a bar. But what really ought to bother us about it is not that it's now a bar, but that something led to it becoming to a bar. And more often than that, 
Uh, sometimes it's for logical reasons. So when you go to England, there's a church on every street corner. This is back in the day when you didn't have vehicles where you could drive to a church, and so you would all walk to your parish church. So there are some geographic issues as to why you might not need every single church building. But there are oftentimes when I'll go to cities, especially in the United States, and I'll see this church building, and there's not another church for several blocks around it. And it's a growing, vibrant neighborhood. And yet the church is dying on the vine. And so rather than lamenting, well, now it's a bar, I lament whatever it was that led it to that place. Indeed, on the opposite side of that, there are plenty of buildings that are filled with people, but if those life-changing experiences through the gospel are not happening, in no way is that building consecrated. It might as well be a bar. In fact, it might even be more edifying if it were a bar. We, every time we have Holy Communion here, we uh, articulate this in our service. When we talk about the nature of consecration, and we have a little prayer that is often called the prayer of consecration in our liturgy. And let me just read uh, the key lines uh, to you. All glory be to thee, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, for that thou of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there, there, on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And then fast forward. Hear us, O merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee, and grant that we, receiving these thy creatures of bread and wine, according to thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. Now we call it the prayer of consecration. What's being consecrated? Grant that we... Receiving these thy creatures of bread and wine, according to thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, holy institution, and remembrance of his death and passion, that we may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. We're actually praying that we would be consecrated, that we would be set apart, that our hearts and the eyes of our hearts and our ears would be able to behold the reality of the living God, Jesus Christ, dwelling within us and feeding us spiritually through the bread and the wine and receiving him by faith. And so the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing, that not dismissing where well, you don't really need a priest, but understanding Understanding what Jesus Christ has done for you, and later on he talked about propitiation for sins, which we're going to get to in just a minute. But it's really not about buildings, it's not about the synagogue, it's not about the temple, it's not about priests, it's about Jesus and that he's calling a people unto himself. Now later on, we see in uh, 2.16 that he's calling a people to himself. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now he might have been saying this a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Because that's the whole fight. Who is the offspring of Abraham? 
The people in the synagogue were saying, we have Abraham as our father. But the author of Hebrews says, echoing Galatians, no, here are who the children of Abraham are. Chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 in Galatians. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Jesus even said this, didn't he? When someone said, we have, we've never been in slavery. That was such a curious and crazy conversation that Jesus had for them. Remember when he was talking about being in bondage and they said, we've been in slavery to no man. Really, I, I've seen the Ten Commandments. I, I, there was this little time in the period of the Israelites' life called Egypt, right, where they certainly uh, were in bondage, and they just completely had disregarded that. And Jesus said, look, if I wanted to, I could make these stones children of Abraham. Do not claim for yourself that you're a child of Abraham simply by birth. But in fact, to be a child of Abraham is to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to actually believe and live within the life of the living God. That is what makes you a child of God. That is what makes you a child of Abraham. And it is those that God is gathering around himself through the work of Jesus Christ. He's calling himself a people, the children of Abraham, who is his church. And he wants to continue to connect the dots in the Old Testament to this point. And so he makes three quotes, and those quotes are for Psalm 22, Isaiah 8, and Psalm 95. Now looking at these isolated from one another, can anyone make heads or tail of these? I don't know what the man's point is. But you start to see what he's quoting, and if you go back and see those biblical passages, which they would have known, the lights come on. The first one when he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's Psalm 22. Do you know Psalm 22? Well, we all know its neighbor, don't we? Psalm 23. Let me read some passages from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What is the psalmist talking about? He's talking about the cross. Not only does Jesus quote Psalm 22 from the cross, it's a messianic psalm. It looks forward to the cross when actually this psalm of David would be lived out. And so that's why the author of Hebrews quotes it. Go back to Psalm 22. Read for yourself when your faith begins to shake about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah 8, I will put my trust in him. Isaiah 8, I'm not going to quote from it, uh, but Isaiah is preaching at a time when nobody's listening to him. 
He's putting the Word of God out there and everybody's turning their back on the Word of God. In the same way that here is the Gospel being preached to these Jewish Christians and it's easy to turn your back on it, especially with all the pressures around them. Your own family, others saying, this is really not something that you ought to believe in and it's foolishness. Is that really what God would have us to do? Is that really what God is saying? And so Isaiah talks about abandonment. And yet, what we see in Isaiah is that God preserves a faithful remnant, that the gospel can never be put out, and his people can never be put out. They will never be snuffed out. And then finally, he quotes Psalm 95. I bet you, most of you could quote most of Psalm 95 to me. Come, let us sing unto the Lord. Right, we sing it almost every morning prayer. We call it the Vanity. But you see how he's linking it all together. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Even though it seems like the whole world is against it, God will preserve a faithful remnant. But then you get to Psalm 95, where the author of the psalm says, Do not harden your heart today that you would hearken to his voice. Not like the days in the wilderness when everybody turned their back on God but that you would hear his voice, hear the call on your life, and not harden your heart, but respond to him. He's using the Old Testament as a gospel presentation in just a handful of quotes. But sticking with the whole idea of being a priest, that the idea that Jesus is a priest and that they no longer are going up to the temple to make sacrifices for whatever it is that sacrifices need to be made for in their lives. The author says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. That Jesus not only comes, but he does something about the defilement of the heart. He reckons with the sin problem. This is why he talks about propitiation for the sins of the people. This is an important word, propitiation, because it doesn't just mean forgiveness. It means that God has actually dealt with your sins in total and in finality. That they're as far as, as the east is from the west. That it's, it's not an issue of that, uh, well, I forgave you for this, but I haven't forgiven you for this. Or that my forgiveness for you has its limitations. But that your sins, your sin record, if you will, past, present, and future, has been completely and totally obliterated because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. All the sins of the world upon him were laid upon him on the cross. That's where it all went. And so that's why he quotes Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That it was Jesus' death on the cross that reconcile us, reconciles us to God. And he also uses the word propitiation here because there's an accusation that that kind of sounds like those pagan priests. You know, that, that take the offering into the pagan temples in order to appease an angry God. But the idea of Jesus' death on the cross is totally opposite of that. We're not appeasing an angry God. Because it's God himself who does something about it, doesn't he? It's his idea. 
It's his plan to come into the world and to save us, even those who did not love him. He saves us, he dies for us, and makes of us a people for him. And what does he rescue us from? Lifelong slavery. And what, gives, what makes us slaves? A fear of death. A fear of death. Their lives are not all that different from ours. We live our lives so often, even as believers, as if this life is all there is. He who has the most toys wins. And yet everything that we've accumulated in this life, as he says earlier, it's all going to be rolled up like a garment and thrown into the fire. It's all going to burn. It doesn't mean that we don't provide for our families. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't uh, save uh, for our futures. But what it ought to do is to give us some perspective about what it is that we're heading to. We have no abiding city. When we talked about this, whether last week or the week before, that Christianity is primarily a future-oriented faith. And so I hope that what you hear and understand in every sermon, every teaching, every Bible study, every small group that we have here at the Advent is this. We want you to go to heaven with us. We want you to go to heaven with us. We want you to join this family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to see your heart filled with love and joy and hope, looking forward to that heavenly city, which is not pie in the sky, but is even a greater reality than what we're experiencing right now. Right now, we dwell in the shadowlands. This is not reality. I mean, whoever coined the term fake news, it's been around since Eden. Is that what God really said? Surely you will not die. Fake news. First heard in the Garden of Eden. We're the ones who are actually living in the non-reality. Heaven. And then ultimately when Jesus returns a new heaven and a new earth, that is ultimate reality. But he comes and does what he does and lives and dies as one of us in order to identify for us. Because the question still lingers, so what is Jesus doing now? What can he do for me as my great high priest? Well, one, he comes into the world as one of us. It's a remarkable thing in ministry to see things like this happen. I have a good friend who's a retired pastor named John Palmer. And uh, John served uh, several tours in Vietnam. Uh, he was uh, in um, an army helicopter pilot. And then as an officer, he was helping coordinate attacks. And one of those attacks that he helped coordinate uh, was made infamous uh, by a photograph of a naked little girl. You may have seen it burned uh, by the napalm that was dropped on that village. And some years later, John became a believer and he was never able to shake that image from his mind knowing that he had a hand in that attack. That he helped execute the order from on high to make that attack happen. Well, it turns out that Kim Fook, the little girl in the photograph, has since emigrated to Canada and she's a believer. And both she and John Plummer 
have been traveling around the country talking to veterans groups about reconciliation in Jesus Christ and how God can take a situation that seems so far gone and a man who helped perpetrate such an atrocity and a child who is on the receiving end of it are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to see John Palmer's ministry among veterans who for years have had either breakdowns or have not really been able to recover from the experiences they had in war and how within just a couple moments his presence of being where they have been, he's able to communicate the gospel to them. And in the same way, Jesus coming and dwelling amongst us communicates his gospel to us. He's not unable to sympathize with who we are and where we've been and what we're dealing with now. He's seen it all and he's experienced it all. Well, this is a lot and our time is coming to a close, so I'm just going to stop there. But if there's anything that you take away from this, I hope that you know that in Jesus Christ that you have a great future and a great God in heaven who continues to intercede for you and act on your behalf. He's not left you alone. You are no orphan. And that you would commit to yourself two words, three words technically, in verse 17. He's been made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And how does he do that? How does it manifest itself that he might become a merciful and faithful priest? Do you understand how merciful and kind God is to you? Do you understand how faithful God is to you that he will never leave you nor forsake you because that is the Jesus Christ that the author of Hebrews talks about and is the reality for you and I who put our trust in him. Let us pray. God, what you're saying to us in the book of Hebrews is overwhelming and um, our hearts uh, have a hard time fathoming just how near you are to us and how deep your love for us is. And so, God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and that we would know you as our merciful and faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.